Welcome to the ABA and PT podcast, where I interview scientists and practitioners from the world of precision teaching and behaviour analysis and share their journeys of how they found their way to the science of behaviour, as well as their discoveries through the use of the standard acceleration chart. I'm Mandy Mason, a scientist practitioner in Perth, Australia, impacted by my daughter with autism, who caused me to knock on enough doors to find my way to this extraordinary field. And I'm on a journey to share how precision teaching and the use of the standard acceleration chart can change the world and make it a better place to live. I'm managing to combine my two great loves of sprinting and working with kids and still getting away with it. Well, this is a big privilege. Uh, It's a big privilege to have Elizabeth on the podcast once, but then she let me have her back a second time. And she's still a very busy lady teaching and incorporating all that she knows from all of her work. Can I say 50 years? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Say five decades. That doesn't <laughs> that sound less scary, doesn't it? Five decades. All right. Well, a long time. And uh, in that time, Elizabeth had the most amazing learnings that have just impacted people around the world. And just before we started recording, I, I shared with her that I had heard through the PT grapevine of her amazing use of metronomes. And just this week, I incorporated with one of my learners and had profound outcomes within a a matter of hours. So she's impacting people all around the world and I couldn't be happier to have her back today to talk about a very specific terminology in the PT world. At least I think it comes from precision teaching. You will share that with us. So So thank you so much for agreeing to come back about this because when I mentioned something about that in our last podcast, you were like, oh, yeah, I'm still learning. And I'm like, five decades and you're still learning about pinpointing. So for those people, tell us how you came to know about pinpointing and maybe your beautiful plain English version of what pinpointing is. Pinpointing to me is having a precise statement about exactly what the behavior is or what I call, thanks to Clay Starlin, I call it the skill description. Right. You know, because parents think of behavior as, Correct behavior and wrong behavior. Yes. When I tell them I'm describing the skill that their student will be doing, they understand that. So I happen to, to call it the skills description, like I said, thanks to Clay. But it is, it is really, really important to have a clear description. I think mainly, well, so you know what the student's doing. Often when I think I have a new pinpoint I've never done before, I try it on myself or on a student that can just do it. So trying it so you get a good description. I think that's really, really important that the description is clear so you and the student know. So you can communicate to the team because there's usually other people working on it too. And that's really important. But it sometimes can get complicated too. Yes, yes trying to figure out like just exactly <laughs> what am I? But I have a form. I'm a form person. People yes. who know me know I use forms. So I have a form that I put my pinpoint on so I know I'll have all the parts. And that really helps me make sure that I have a good description. Observation is, is skills are the key to pinpointing too. Well, let's face it, but watching them, to me, what can they do that I'm watching, especially a complicated student. Now, if a student has a reading problem, I know a lot about reading. Yes. But if they have language problems or they're not sitting in there, they don't attend or, 
you know, then I'm watching when does the behavior occur that I want? Yes. And that observation skill is really important. So whatever they're doing, like a new little student I have who whose parents only speak Spanish really clearly and they speak Spanish at home and he doesn't hear a lot of English. And so he has an attention problem, they said at school. I see that as he's confused a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So he gets off topic and gets into things and, you know, but now that I've pinpointed what he can do and I'm building on his strengths before I'm into, as a teacher, I know where I want him to be, but where is he? That's not what, you know what I mean? So I've got it down now and he's really attending. I wouldn't even know after three sessions that he has an attention issue because I'm doing what he can do and what he likes to do. And I'm, he's a, he wants to do it. What was it that you observed that he was doing that he liked to do? Oh, he really likes putting puzzles together. Uh He really likes to do uh, phonological coding, which they thought he had an auditory. He does have some listening comp, but his phonemic awareness is pretty much intact. And, you know, he has some syllable rhythm, get back to rhythm and metronome and things. He like uh, hippopotamus, when he claps syllables, three to four syllables, he doesn't have the cadence, but he does fine on one and two syllable words. But that he, you know, so he likes doing the ones he can do. But if it's complicated, it gets him to a hard one and he's off looking at something else and wondering what that's for over there in the room, you know. So he likes to do math. He likes to write. So he'll do straight and vertical and, and horizontal lines and circles. And he's working on that. So he tends beautifully on that. And naming objects, as long as there's not too many objects, he doesn't know. So I'm careful to make sure that he's getting his pace up on what he knows and can attend to. So pinpointing that, just watching him and giving him things to do and those that he has trouble with and is distracted on, I'm just putting aside for now. I know I'm going to do them, some of them, but I'm not going to put it's this, this has taught me, I mean, I believe in developing strengths, but he has taught me again at a different level with his attention issue that you do with what they can do and you pinpoint it. It's sometimes hard, but with him, it's not that hard because, you know, he likes doing the uh, bop it so he can bop it, tap it, squeeze it, you know, do oh, yeah. some things like that. So I just go along with the things he can do and likes to do. And once I get those fluent, I'll begin to slowly move into his needs and work on like he can do pretty well with functions of things, simple things, but he can't categorize. He doesn't know a couch and a chair and a table or furniture. Right. So I'm going to be pinpointing, of course, some category work, but I'm not going to have him hear a bunch of things and tell me the category. I'm going to have the pictures down there. Is that an animal or furniture or a color? 
So he only has three choices and teach him categories by breaking it down to shorter pinpoints that are a hear point say. Yes. Tell me where you first learned this terminology of pinpoint because many people in the behavioral field, they wouldn't have heard that term necessarily. Well, of course, most people who know me know that Eric Houghton is, you know, the reason I, he, Eric Houghton was a brilliant scientist with the greatest heart. Without the heart, I don't know if I'd have been a precision teacher because it's a lot to learn, you know, but he was so good. And as he always asked you, when you asked him something, he hardly ever gave you an answer. He gave you a question back. He all, and I, once in a while, I used to say to him, don't you dare ask me a question. (laughs) Tell me what you think, you know, but he wanted you to think as a scientist and that's really helped my work. So Eric really helped me. Carl Binder definitely is a person I, Carl's always been my friend and someone I could call and say, oh, I've got this, help me with this, you know. Another person that I'm, that's really made a difference for my pinpointing is my sister, who's an outstanding teacher and precision teacher, uh, Jenna Spencer, Clay Starlin. Uh, and recently I've been working with Shelly Yike and Jonathan Amy. I'm really learning to pinpoint the motor area because, you know, it's a new area for me. I haven't had other than Terry Harris, who I did motor with, but not the way I wish I'd have known what I'm learning now from Jonathan to apply to Terry. In fact, Jonathan and Shelly and I went up and they're working with Terry Harris, even as a 50 year old, you know, because he still needs motor. And so I said to Jonathan and Shelly, would you please go to Canada with me? Because Terry is concerned about being in a wheelchair and I want to do what we can do for him without that happening. So I love working with them. There's just so many people. Did I mention Clay Starlin? Yeah, you Clay and I have known each other a long time. And his new book will be coming out soon. And that can help people who want to learn more about pinpointing. Well, I dropped your name and he's agreed to come on the podcast. So um, I'm interviewing him next. So thank you so much for that. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's wonderful. So why do you use that very specific term? Because pinpoint evokes a lot of visual images, doesn't it, of a pin pointing, you know, and making a mark in paper. Do you think he chose that very specifically? Well, I think it's so important because it's the first step. If you don't have a clear pinpoint, how can you measure Yeah, and communicate? So it's the next step of precision teaching is to pinpoint first, then to measure. Yes. And if you don't get it clear, it's hard to stay consistent. And then it's hard to keep it on your chart. And, um, as I say to people with what it all gave us on our try, try, try again, the fourth step of precision teaching, making decisions with your data, that gets very confusing too if you don't have a consistent pinpoint. Yes, good. So, um, so, so when you're first starting to pinpoint, what's important about the language element of a pinpoint? Oh, you mean the different parts of it, what I call them? Well, yeah. Yeah. Is that an important element to describe what you are observing and what you're recording? (laughs) Most people think of the movement cycle first. Yeah, okay, good. 
That's what I called the learning statement for years instead of the movement cycle. We called it the learning statement. What are they going to learn? Yes. Like I said earlier, now I call it the skills description. Okay. So people got to remember, and that's what in precision teaching, we change terms to make it in plain English as all taught us to what do people and parents understand? For me, it's a parent. When I talk to a parent or a new learning coach, if I'm training people, I want them to understand, even though they haven't had a lot of training in behavioral terms, Yeah, I want them to understand. So that's the first part, getting that straight, what the behavior or the skill you're going to teach. Okay. And so I hope I've got this um, right. In a learning statement or in a movement cycle, you would have a start time, a do time, a stop time is how John described it for me. It does have to have a big, you know, but... I guess I've done it so long, I don't think of setting those writings, but it is important yeah. to, to have uh, set in your mind when, what your time frame is going to be. I'm a pretty set person, I have to admit. Uh, people have reminded me. I'm a one-minute person. Yeah. I do a lot of minutes, but I do a lot of minutes, and I do a lot of 10 seconds. Yeah, those are two things. That I, now, I do 30 seconds and I do what I call total time too. how long does the task take? And you do have to define that, you know, what sample where you're going to begin and, you know, what the time will be. But it, it, I think just describing it, and doing it yourself and doing it with a student and seeing if it's how it works out is really important not to try to spend hours trying to define it. But as soon as I get the movement cycle or the skill description, I, of course, go to the learning channel. So can you give me an example, Elizabeth, of what a learning statement might be, say, for a write task? Because given that you're the queen of writing, (laughs) what might be a movement cycle, say, in a writing task that a kid is doing? Okay, well, see, I mean, writing letters in the alphabet are copying, copying from a passage. Okay. Then I have to say, is it a C-write? Yeah. That's usually C-write copy from a passage. You know, you might describe the passage or say that it's, you know, that it's a third grade level or a low, vo- you know, what the vocabulary of the passage is going to be. But you would describe it then. And the reason I'm so set on channels is, well, a couple of things happened in my life. Uh, to One is a kindergarten student who they said she was in my first grade class. She could identify her colors. Well, that's a pretty good thing. Identify colors. Okay, she can identify her colors. Well, I was trying to get her to say the color. I put the crayon box out. She didn't know her colors. I put some different candies out. She couldn't name them. I put out some colored, you know, she couldn't name colors. So I asked the kindergarten teacher, did she know her colors? Oh, yeah, she knew her colors. Well, she knew her colors because the kindergarten teacher said, point to something yellow, point to something red, point to, she could do a hear point, but she couldn't call up a say. Wow. And I was doing a say. So no matter how clear the movement cycle is, what does the verb identify mean? <laughs> right. And I think 
I might have told about David this when I was a youngster and going to elementary school, I think I told about David, who everyone said could not read in fifth grade. But when I had him point to the words, he could point to him. And when I said to the teacher, he can read, the teacher said, no, he can't read. And I said, yes, he can read. And what I meant, he could hear point to the words, but he couldn't read them out loud a different channel. I mean, so I'm, a, I, I'm kind of a wanting to make my verb clear with the learning channel. Yes. And um, studying channels is a lot for some people. It confuses them. But I think if they understand that there's about seven intake channels, see here, you know, and there's hundreds of outputs, hundreds of outputs. That's what's confusing is what output you're going to use. But those two things are important for the pinpoint. And then, of course, the aim or the fluency guide or the master. See, this is where we get hard for new people in precision teaching. We have these multiple names, but you just have to go to your team. If you have a team, use the vocabulary the team is going to use. Yeah. Learn maybe some of the old fashioned terms or new ones or whatever, but what is your team going to use? Because that's the main thing, the communication. So if it's called an aim or if it's called the fluency guide or mastery guide, but if you don't have an aim, as stu my student once said, you're aimless. <laughs> you know, what are you doing it for? What is that range? And we must make sure it's, I believe it's a range. You know, you set a range for that pinpoint that you want the student to perform in. Now, how do you find that range? Well, I was just talking to a person not long ago, and they said, well, they can't read 150 words a minute in first grade. So I said to her, well, sample your first graders and put it on a chart, and you'll see the whole range. I, we call it a collection of the class. And then look what your good readers are doing and aim for that. She was so relieved. Because she didn't want to head for 150, which we often talk about for oral reading, because she knew that was really high for her first grade. But you can decide what some people call a pathway aim now. Shelly Yike and I have been calling it a little bit. What's the pathway aim to get to fluency or mastery? So, you know, those are three, well, you should say the student will see right letters or words. You can account words from the passage or letters. That's important. See, this is where we have that scale up that John talked about, too. Yeah. You know, you can talk, you can do letters, you can do words, you can do syllables. So what is it that you want to do? And then what's your aim going to be for writing? So that's really, really important. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It totally does. And it's, it's very different to, you know, before I became a precision teacher, it's often a real confusion when you're trying to work out what you teach because it wasn't very clear. And those learning channels within precision teaching make it very clear between coaches, you know, what you are targeting. Because, yes. yeah, well, on all pinpoints, but, you know, reading in particular. Oh, no, that's really true. Yeah. But it is one thing in precision teaching I find that, that does make pinpointing difficult. And that's because a lot of times 
precision teachers don't have a scope and sequence of what they're trying to teach. Yeah. I mean, I heard a person recently who had a master's degree in reading and he admitted he didn't know the skills for reading. <laughs> so I've been recently making up what I call skills overviews. They aren't pinpoints, but they lead you to pinpoints. What are all the skills, especially reading? You've got that C channel, the hear channel, the language, you know, with phonemic awareness, with eye tracking, with comprehension, with the language. When I made up the skills overview, it took two pages to do reading. Yeah. I think we need desperately to have an overview of what we're going to pinpoint. Because all of a sudden, you know, it's not going anywhere, but what are those foundation skills those basic skills and application that you want. So I really feel there's a need for that. I certainly did need it myself. It's so helpful. I go to it now. My, I go to my, you know, we, I hope to have those up on, hopefully on my new website. And so people can just download them free and add to them. Oh, lovely. Because why create, everyone shouldn't have to create them. We should just give what we know and then people can add what they want to add to them. Yeah. Because it's not a pinpoint, but it's a, the areas that are so important. And I think Heart to Chart and maybe Fluency.org will put them up too. Wonderful. So that, yeah, otherwise everyone's recreating all of these materials that already exist in the world. You still have to keep it doing it for children you or learners you have that <laughs> that fall out of the scope. So why not give what we have so we don't have to create it all again? Great. You know what I, mean. I love that. All right, let me ask you another question then. So we talked about a movement cycle or what you call a learning statement, which I love. I, I love that English to be able to talk to parents uh, in ways that make, make it easy for them to understand. Um, the next thing that John asked me to discuss was um, the use of ing verbs in the learning statement. Did you want to make a comment about that? Like reading words versus read words. Is that is that something you can Yes. Uh, we were just trained to drop the ing. Okay, good. You can say ing. reading, but I don't I because of the learning channel too, that helps just to make the verb present not ing on it. And I guess it's so many years of just dropping it because in the beginning we did use ing a lot. Yeah. Right. I remember. The student would be writing math facts, but I think once we we decided we're going to write math facts, oh, are they going to hear, write them, see, write them, think, write them? We knew we needed to go to the learning channel. I think that helped us clean up the verb, yeah, and not be putting ing on everything. So I don't think it's wrong. I just think it's better to do the present tense and add the channel so you have that input output of what they're going to do but uh i don't find ings on most things anymore if you look at what but when you're new at it you've got to give yourself like i said a team someone to study with that's why i'm so thankful that i had so many people and and actually thank all my students who keep teaching me <laughs> new things <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, you know. And the chart itself, right, because, you know, you, you may be uh, following on from another coach. You sit down and you're like, I can't get this right. What's happening here? Like 
she's getting 12 in a minute you know, or whatever, 12 in 10 seconds. And I'm a pretty good teacher, but I can't even get near that. And you know, right, there's something wrong with the description of what you're teaching. Is that a, is that a good, also a good yes. thing to say? Yes, that's why I say do it yourself. Do it with a student if you're working with a complicated student. Like when I had Terry Harris, I mean, I had a whole classroom full of kids that I could try things on and get the description right. And he could even see them doing it. That that's important to, to work at it a bit and then keep it, write it under a topic. That's why I have a form because I keep all my old forms where I've explored and then I can look back at them. You know, and that's really important. That's what's in all these binders. I have so many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our audience might be able to see that. There's literally hundreds of binders behind you. But behind me and my garage is full, but Shelly has volunteered to come and help me maybe next summer go through and throw out the ones that I've got duplicates of <laughs> and give them away to people. And that's what I want to put up on the website It's just give away things that I've discovered so that people can discover more things. Wonderful. Because there's more, there's always more students that need our attention that are a challenge. You know? Yeah. And uh, we certainly with the kids on the spectrum have a challenge of some of them to pinpoint what they can do to get them to attend to it. So they like it and will work on it. It's a challenge. It is a you know I don't mind saying it. Yeah. And, uh, but so. it makes fun, right? I, I know. I just uh, Jonathan is a, a, a great resource. I'm very lucky to uh, to work with him, and um, I work with a lot of kids on the spectrum. And he's just has some really creative ideas of how to get back to behavior that a child already has in place. And the something he gave me just recently, we. You know, we really want a kid to engage with an iPad so he has something to do with his time when he's not with us and his parents can engage in other things for short periods of time. But, you know, his motor is is really challenged. And so he's just had us, you know, what does he like to do? He likes to press things. So he's just, we have a pile of coins and he just sorts them into a little bucket off the edge of the table so we're getting a really nice stroke so that he will be able to, you know, engage with the iPad. And like, all of a sudden we have this really high rate behavior and a lot of focus around an activity that he doesn't need, you know, any assistance with. And of course that's showing up on an iPad now. So, um, yeah, so yeah, it makes it a lot of fun. And, you, you know, as you say, observe the learner, see what they can do, see what that looks like, see how that gets incorporated into a, harder, a higher level skill. Do you want to talk about some pinpoints so we can give some examples and non-examples of pinpoints? Okay. What do you think? <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm cheating here because I'm looking at John Isham's stories. Uh, okay, great. So he gives an example of twist knob, which, you know, we're getting kind of uh, caught up in the language here. So what he said about that pinpoint is it's, it's a single case. It's present tense verb. Um, it describes a complete movement cycle and it doesn't include a result or a judgment. So that's a, what you would call a clear pinpoint. Yeah, I think we all know that that twisting that knob, then for me, once you know you have that, what do they need before that and how are they going to apply it? So we know they can then open doors, which is great for the application. But what if they don't have this? Yeah. What if they 
you know, or grasp. So we have to go back to what we call, I call foundation skills underneath it and say, what are the pinpoints so that it enables them to grasp, put things in it so that then they can do that twist. Yeah. So if so, you imagine a, a doorknob on your table in front of the learner, um, you know, if you said twisting knob, that's like a, a something that you couldn't pinpoint in time because it's something they could be doing or they're not doing or they could continue to do as opposed to twist knob would be one uh, action back and forward. That's, right. Is that right? that's what you would count? One back that's and right. forth action. So one just- back and forth. Or you can count each, t- you know, it, it, as long as you stay consistent, that's the other, and you can communicate it to the team. You don't want one person counting it one way and one person counting it another way. Yes. So that that's what would be free do? Yeah, it could be free do. I don't use free. I mean, I do, and I'm in, I use think do, see do, really, because they're seeing it. Yeah. To me, free, when I tell a parent free, they don't understand. And I said, and if I tell them, it just means they're not using see here, you know, they're just, then, but when I use think, they're just thinking it up. They're not seeing it. They're not hearing it. So I happen to use think still. But most people have moved to free. If yeah. you look in, in literature, you'll see free do. And so that's good, you know, but it's it's actually the knob is seeing it. Usually they're seeing it. Yeah. You know, so, so you would, but it is a do. I would you could call it a twist too. Is it a do? You can often say it do. Well, what do you mean by that do? Well, it's a twist. See, yeah. you want to get as clear as you can. Right. You know, so it's, it, it's actually you know, a twist unless that kid had their eyes shut. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, and that, and that happens when you have a blind child okay, or I, you know, when I had at your uh, McGill university in Montreal, I had a student, we had a student in our class who, who, who had, who was blind. And Eric said to me, she just missing the C channel. do everything else she could do braille anyway at that point but she had braille on her dots on her chart and she could feel the slope I mean she was brilliant I was so nervous that she was in my group that I just didn't know what I was going to do but when he said that it's just one channel missing what else can she do well so she made a chart with with braille on it Yes, with Braille on it, and she could feel it and see if it was moving. Wow, she could identify the deceleration. That's incredible. Yes, yes. So, you know, I mean, we need to be as clear as we can. And and some of the motor things, that's where Jonathan is really good at getting us to understand more and more motor things. Yeah. Because uh, we are the way that you're teaching writing. Oh, handwriting? Uh, Yeah, all that do channel things. Of course, you know, we can talk about Terry and and Terry Harris, you know, I mean, with cerebral palsy. And, you know, the story of Terry Harris taught me so much about observation. Yeah. Because, as he said right in a presentation before, he went to kindergarten out of hell. I mean, that's what he described it. And, you know, when he came to my first grade class, thank goodness, 
I built his strengths. I mean, he learned to read. He learned to do, but I had to pinpoint and watch what could he do because we thought we could guide. That's one of the channels to tell a person to do it or guide them to do. I couldn't guide his hand. It moved against, he just resisted me all the time. Yeah, right. So watching him and seeing what could he do that I could build on, I'll never forget that paintbrush strike. I mean, he just, he could pull the board brush down. He could do things in the sandbox that the district had within a week, they had a sandbox in my classroom. I mean, sure, Terry and I did amazing things, but we had a great team of people too. Yeah. I mean, I got the sandbox right away, uh, things that we needed, but mainly watching him and seeing what he could do. But no matter, I want to add that to no matter how much I pinpointed the key to Terry Harris's success, besides us knowing the chart and the pinpoints and the things in precision teaching, is practice. Practice, good. I mean, Terry and I spent every afternoon after school, half hour before his parents picked him up because he had to come from a different district, from a different school area to transport it to my class. And so they had to transport him. That was one of the agreements that they would put him in my class, but the parents provided transportation. So he stayed a half hour because I could practice reading and math and lots of things when the whole class was practicing, but I couldn't practice his motor skills with the whole class of 33 kids. Yeah. So to have that separate time, it's practice plan is very big and you have, I mean, what if I had all the pinpoints, but I didn't take the time to practice them. Yeah. I mean, it's just absolutely key to learning success is to have practice. Well, I just got a a topic there because I was getting into some examples and non-examples, but I'll also come back to those in a moment, but How do you develop a practice plan for a kid? That's just that example that you gave beautifully um, of Terry, you know, drawing in sand or doing painting. How do you, so that might be something that you're working on together. How do you establish a practice plan so he's engaging that behaviour, you know, outside of direct teaching with you? How do you normally do that? Do you work with the parent? Do you? Mainly I work with the student. Yeah, okay. And I make sure it's achievable chunk. Yeah. That's one of my big things in in life, actually, my own life, when I can't do something and I get frustrated, I go, wait a minute, what's the achievable chunk? How much can I do of it? Can I do 10 minutes of it or five minutes of it? Or can I do it all day long? Or do I, you know, so, you know, establishing what they can do, making sure it's achievable chunk that they like to do. I mean, Terry and I are friends today because of all that time we spent uh, together. <laughs> and when it would snow, he would stay in at recess and we'd practice then too. And sometimes students would stay in and practice with him. Yeah. So that, you know, uh, I might've said that before, but I just had lunch about a year and a half ago with a bunch of Terry's Terry and a bunch of the kids that were in his first grade class. You say that, right? They're still friends, you know, because of practice and helping each other. Yeah. But it is, you have to have your pinpoint straight and you have to know you want that chart to go up. And now how are you going to practice it? And in different channels, 
That's another reason channels are important. It's like, sure, writing math facts, see, write math facts is what I want students to be very good at. But when I'm doing see, write math facts, I do hear, say answers to math facts. I do see, say. I practice other channels, and that's multisensory, which literature's full of all the multisensory ways we should teach. In fact, Montessori and a number of people believe so much in multisensory that they talk about it. Well, we can do it just by understanding channels. Yeah. How many different ways can you practice? But it is a big time and it needs to be made sure. One thing that helps, like I said earlier, is having an aim. If you have an aim, you want to practice. That's what sports do. Yeah. I mean, they want to win the game. That's their aim. And a lot of them know what they need to practice. And like you said, the coach here in Jackson, if you don't go to practice every night after school, you cannot play in the game. Yeah. I mean, I wish I had that. You can't come to me every night and practice. Well, you, you know. <laughs> well, you know, we, we were talking about this before because, you know, we have some parents who will come to us and say, we can only come and work with you two days a week. And it's really hard to do, but, you know, I've become quite firm about saying that it's just not enough practice to make, you know, improvement and your kid just needs more practice. But unless you're going to take this on at home and practice, you know, Every day, really, um, you know, it's, it's not worth your investment of time or money just to come twice a week. So, yeah, I think I love that word practice because it doesn't sound like, oh, we're pushing you to do hours or, you know, work hard. It's like, no, that just takes time and effort to get better at something. And so, yeah, so that daily practice. Yeah. No, the practice plan is on the happy learner when we have the teaching plan, the measurement plan, and the practice plan is usually very big. Yeah, it takes up a lot of the the model of the happy learner because Are you it's so important. The yeah, the practice is there's always measurement in the practice. Well, <laughs> I almost measure everything I practice, but that's just my. You don't have to. You can practice, but the kids like to know. Yeah. Uh, it's like, I'll do it again. I love little Mason, who I saw yesterday. One of my students, he wanted to do his his math facts five times. I He asked to do it again because he wanted to get a personal best, which was 40 a minute. Yeah. He was getting 38, 39. He said, I'm just going to get 40 today. And he did too. I would have never asked him to do it five times. Never. It would be, you know, I would do different channels or make it fun or do flashcards and different things to practice. But he said, can I do it again? Can I do it again? I'm going, oh, my goodness, you know, sure you can, you know. But he's into practice now because he wants to make his aim. He wants to have a per what we call personal best. Yeah. You know, and and they know when, what their scores are, a lot of them. Not all the students do, but a lot of them do, and they're determined to, to, to get it. But setting up a good practice plan can be a challenge, though. Yeah, well, you know, that, I'm going to come back to that because I want to ask you about charting and, and why precision teaching is so enjoyable as a teacher by using the chart to record those types of things and then, you know, uh, give you a teaching plan for what to do. I just want to give you a few more examples. So um, here's a non-example that John shared of complaining or 
what he's saying is there's it's an activity, but it's not a single countable action. A little bit like I see a lot of people trying to record non-compliance. It's not a single accountable action as opposed to say gets out of chair or um, get out of chair. It likely includes a judgment, he says, about the behaviour as well um, because complaining has a meaning different to each person. Is that a good non-example? Yeah, well, that's right. Social and personal pinpoints are really more difficult to do. Yeah. When I do behaviours with students socially and even personally, I tend to do countoons. Do you? I don't know if you've heard of countoons. Mary, can where- you tell me what that is? Yes, it, a countoon is, Harold Kunzman, I believe, is the person who came up with this, but the student has a picture. I'll give you an example of a student who was hitting students just randomly in my classroom. She would just get up and hit somebody, and she wasn't a real aggressive student. She was in third grade. And so I couldn't figure out why she was doing this. So I had her draw a picture. I mean, I was recording how many times she did it. Then I had her recording it, but I had her draw a picture. First, herself working. So what's the first thing? You're working. Secondly, you're out of your seat and hitting someone. Then you're back working so that she understands the movement cycle. You were working. This is what you did. Because they don't understand sometimes the behavior. And then you're working again, or it's talk out. You're working, your mouth is open, you're talking, and you're back working. That's the movement cycle from beginning to end what you're doing. Well, when she drew her picture of her hitting someone, she put a big ear on herself. So I'm going, and I talked to her, how come you put a big ear Come to find out, she's telling me they're making noise. We had the classroom with those chairs that you'd scoot back and the student would scoot back and she was so sensitive to sound, she'd go over and hit them because they were hurting her. So the kids in the class, which who were all afraid of her because she was really aggressive when she, So the kids would lift their chair up and move it back so they wouldn't make loud noise because it bothered her so much. So a count is just a way of, because Eric Houghton believed you should never count on anyone else's behavior. That was his philosophy. If you want to shape a child complaining, they have to learn what complaining is. So how do you get them to understand negative comments or complaining? Here you are. And all of a sudden you say something that gives someone maybe a sad face they would put. So they're talking in a happy face and then they say something that gives a person a sad face. Maybe I'm just making this up. Yeah, I haven't yeah, done yeah, that yeah. one. But they have to have a clear understanding of what's happening and, you you know, so they can count it. And that's what a countoon is all about. It's because the student needs to count whatever it is says Eric Houghton, and I believe that too, because I've counted on students, it doesn't do any good. You can talk to your blue in the face. Sometimes they don't even know what you're, compl- you know, what you're counting. They don't have a real picture of it in their mind. Yeah. And so it's like Earl drawing a cartoon about going to recess. He's out at recess. He's fighting. 
He's standing by the yard duty teacher. Well, that's where he started. He drew a picture of him standing by the yard duty teacher because he couldn't be out in the recess unless I was there and he could stand by me. He had been in so many fights that the teacher said he cannot go on the playground. So I said, okay, okay. When I'm on duty, can he go out? Yes. So Earl, if you want to go out, you have to stand by me. Now we had him counting urges to fight and fights. He had a little counter on each of his belt loops where he counted his urges to fight and his fights. So what we found out was he had lots more urges to fight than he would fight. He was really a troubled little guy, but he learned and and teachers were much better about the fact that they knew then he had self-control because he didn't hit every time he had an urge, but getting him to define it and getting the teachers to understand it spent a lot of my time. (laughs) I don't mind saying, but it was wonderful because it turned out, that Earl knew as soon as he had an urge, go stand by the teacher. Wow, great. So he would have an urge and he'd go, because he wanted to go outside. If you want to go outside, you can't fight. You know, so he would go stand by the teacher and the teachers knew then that when he came and stood by them that he was having problems. So a lot of them would talk to him, you know, and say, Earl, do you need to go inside? Are you okay? And then he would stand there until he went off and played, and then he'd come back again. And that's how we got him out to recesses and got his fights under control. But pinpointing that was, I mean, what's going on with that behavior? That's a hard one. Yeah. You know, and um, but social and inners and outers, as we know, too, right? Pinpointing inners, what you just have going on like complaining thoughts of complaining or urges to complain and complaining. Yeah. You know, but before Abigail, there was a, uh, isn't that funny? And Duncan used to be, oh, yeah. and Duncan was really big. And then Abigail is really the person you can go to now and talk about inners and outers. It's really important to pinpoint those, but they're not easy sometimes. Yeah. Because you don't know what's going on in the thought process. That's why the countoons were a good thing to draw out. I like that. So, I think Jonathan had me, you know, do a contingency log of what's occurring across a day and, uh, yeah, try to identify there something similar but just in words. I like that. Yeah, yeah. No, no. If you have a picture, you can do it. And you, you can take a picture of it three times too, but I always had the kids draw them out. What are they going to draw for what they were trying to deal with their behavior? You know, whether it's talk outs, out of seat, hurting someone else or helping someone else. I mean, I had a little girl in my class once who never had been in school. She was in my second grade class. She never spoke a word. So they didn't have her in school till second grade. And every time she had eye contact with the kids, they rush up to the board and count it. So we just made a little thing on the board that you had. And so I had all this commotion. Of course, they would try to have eye contact. Then we changed it to smiles. So they put a picture. We had a Polaroid picture of her smiling up there and the kids would go up and count when she smiled. Finally, she started talking. Of course, when the day she said something, I think she said, hello, someone everyone stared at her as part of the thing she was scared to death. 
because no one had ever heard her voice before. And they're observing you so much. Yeah. And the kids helped count, but we had to define what they were counting. Eye contact, smiles. And then she went to words. And every time they talked with her, they would make a little mark up on the board. And uh, it was the kids that helped me. Or I, you know, I mean, they were amazing to try to get her to talk. Yeah. So it's, it's there's so many little stories of things that. <laughs> They're so wonderful, Elizabeth. All of your stories help so much. Everybody else understand context. It's so wonderful. What else can we say? Can we talk about the count then? Is that the next place to go? So we talked about a movement cycle or a learning statement. Um, we talked about identifying the learning channel. And obviously you talked a lot there about practice, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. Next, obviously, is what you're going to count. Yeah, the counting, what you're going to count. You mean the duration of it or just the count itself? Well, the count itself, but, yeah, you can talk yeah. about it if you want. Well, look at all the things we count with. Yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't get along without my tally counter at my station. Yeah. The kids love it. They like to get fast on it, too. Most of them have <laughs> one time during the hour they say, can I do the counter now? I let them decide when they want to do it. Yeah. Uh, I don't put it on their program sheet. That's a desire. Do, do they want to do it? I mean, there's counting the actual words they read. Well, a lot of academic things are easier to count. Yes then doing personal pinpoints or social pinpoints can be a lot harder to count. But counting words, making decisions, you can count words, letters, you know, what are you going to count? Yeah. Number of boxes they fill in or number of tallies they make or, you know, it's it, all you have to do, though, is set it. Yeah. And do it yourself. I don't know if I say that enough times today, yeah. but I think that we need to do it ourselves and see what it is. Oh, what am I thinking while I'm doing it? And what does it feel like when I'm doing it? I don't know. With Jonathan's gross motor stuff, it's so important. There's some, first of all, you have to be very careful because you can actually damage someone if you're working on their motor. But um, yeah, just to feel how it looks like for instance you know like um shoulder rotation is what we're working on at the moment like how that feels and it can actually be really painful if you if you have a lot of tightness in your shoulders so like yeah feeling how that feels so you then can help the learner um get in contact with that feeling too i i love that i think it was you that yes. said, uh, uh, he always says it don't do it unless they're willing to do it and they're able to do it that's why starting with what they can do yeah. Again, it's just so important because you can do damage if you don't, you know, really be careful uh, of what you're deciding to count. But mostly in academics, it's much easier because there's usually a product or something that they've completed or done that you can get a handle on. You know, it's fun to just explore it. And I feel fortunate that I was back in the beginning of precision teaching when we didn't have channels, we didn't have our movement, you know, even in academics, and we certainly didn't have aims. We timed each other. One of our whole courses from the University of Oregon with Eric Houghton was just timing ourselves on as many pinpoints as we could do. And every night we that we met, we would just time each other on new pinpoints we were discovering. Yeah. How many letters per minute and hear right words and spelling? Are you going to count letters or words or syllables? 
And we would count different things and see which ones worked out, you know, and we would say, oh, I'm doing math facts and I have three students who are flat. What can I do? You know, what's next pinpoint? What can I do? Well, oh, how fast do they write their numbers? Yeah. Oh, their writing numbers are slower. Their reading numbers are slow. That was what was causing them to be cold. Let's do a CSA and see if we can get the CSA answers to math facts sums to zero to five up. You know what I mean? Being as clear as we can about that movement cycle or the skills description. Yes. And then multi-channeling it. But rather than get uptight, people need to have fun with it. Yeah. But it's hard when you're by yourself. That's why the team is so important. I mean, it's fun, you know, when you have a team. Yeah. Like I have fun with Shelly and Jonathan and Clay and Carl. I mean, we, we batter it around and, you know, and come up with something. Yeah. And it becomes a fun experience. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than something that you you're afraid to do. And there's a lot of curriculum available for people to, to use the pinpoints out of, to get started and then see that the student can't do, for example, in phonemic awareness, moving the blocks for the different syllables because they can't, they don't have the dexterity to move the blocks. Yeah. That is a fantastic example. You can get a lot of behavior around kids that have difficulty pulling blocks down. They fall off the table. There's a lot of correct. It slows down the timings. That's such a great example. We use blocks. Yeah. So we go to marks. Just make marks on a chalkboard. Yeah. So sometimes that works. Now, maybe that doesn't work. How about clapping them and saying them? If they can, you know, there are different ways because if the blocks are a problem, what is it that we can do that isn't like clapping or making, like I said, making marks? I'm sure there's other ways too, you know, to to do it without. Yeah, we've had you know know, tap them rather than pull them, or we've gone back and got their, you know, they're pointing really fluent or. Um, even you know, yeah. in front of the block or drag the finger past the block. Or yeah, that's a that's right. Instead of getting stuck on the actual pinpoint that you're trying to get and get a lot of behavior as a result. Yeah. So you you go to what the you you look and you try, oh, I wonder if I do it this way, I wonder if I do it this way, or clapping or whatever, you can get that behavior to make sure they have it. Because there's not one input output. I mean, there's multiple channels. Yeah, I think that's where the channels have caused me to be so creative that I just love it to think, oh, what can I do? You know, yeah, so and where did you where did that first come about? When when do you remember the discussion around channels coming about in precision teaching? Well, for me, uh, though, Eric was working on it before he drew the matrix, but it was that little girl, Wendy, and her colors that brought out those matrixes that he made. Right. Before that, we talked about it, but we never put the channel down because we didn't have it clear. We just tried to make the verb clear. Got it. So when he drew those first matrices, that's when channels we realized, oh, my goodness. In fact, in his classes with early childhood education at Loyalist College, 
they had to take a matrix and fill in every block. What could you do in every channel? Oh my gosh, when I saw what they were doing, I realized, oh, there's so many options when you have to take something like, I remember one was the topic was spring. So they were going to teach about spring because it's season. Yep. And they had to talk about all the different channels that they could do, even taste and smell and what are signs of spring that bring in those. And it was amazing that people came up with all kinds of options of things that, you know, so it was a good exercise. In fact, he asked me to do one. So I did one on, I forget what it was, math or some, it was some academic thing. And on some channels, it was hard for me to get the output to work. But Carl has drawn a, a matrix for, for business, like tap is really important and select. And what are the things that business people do because of typing and stuff that we never even had on some of our matrices, you know, that are more business orientated. Good. So, you know, those, of, so those of the listeners that don't know about that matrix, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the matrix has the seven inputs. Okay. I wish I could, you know, so I, I have one here actually. Okay, so sure. it's think, yep. touch, taste, Sniff, see, hear, and feel. Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's having a feeling, too. Shelly did a wonderful thing. She put a light bulb for think and a hand for touch and a mouth for taste. And a no- she put the actual body parts you use so it helps to remember those inputs. The nice thing is there's only seven inputs, really, that we use mostly to get information. The other thing, the outputs... Oh, there's so many of them. Yeah, there's right. so many outputs that, you know, but we use mainly in academics that Eric had an academic one, a motor one, an element one, and Carl came up with the business one. <laughs> so, but we have say and write, which is the two we use in academics a lot. Yeah. Point, point, do, mark, match, sort. Select, which is a lot of multiple choice. Yep. See, select. That's an important one. See, type, touch. And then we always leave a blank so people know that there are more output channels you can add, you know. And it really helps to, I don't know, it helps me to have the matrix available at times because I can get kind of stuck in coming up with, them, but I have fun with them, so it's not as hard anymore for me to come up with. Uh, Can you talk a little bit? You mentioned before, like combining channels. Like some of your programs might be, you know, a math fact of C say right versus just C say or C right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you're pretty famous uh, in precision teaching literature for some of those learning channels. And how do you describe when you put more than Two learning channels together, you call that yeah, multi-channel? Yeah, multi-channel. In fact, Og did a streaming. I think he called it streaming. Yeah. You have a whole bunch of channels that you could use and happen at the same time. But think is usually always going on. Yes. But you can see something and touch it and then say about it. So that you, and we, when we write that, we usually write C dot touch. 
Okay. We usually put a little dot. Some people put a dash. It's not right or wrong, but then there's a definite slash when you go to the output. Yes. I do use a lot of different channels because I'm trying to find out which ones are usable. And also I want to practice in different ways because different people think differently. And when you go to spell a word, let's take spelling for an example, which we do mostly hear right for spelling. Where's spelling in the application in the world? It's a think right. Yeah. So can we say to the student, write all the things you that you think about when you think of food? And they put food down and then they write uh, popcorn, uh, candy, uh, menu, restaurant. You know, they start generating a think right, associating it with it. So you can go to a think right channel by giving them a category. And think right is where we use mostly spelling. We don't use a hear right. I mean, you might hear it in your head, but really it's a think right. Yeah. And, and you see, um, you know, a lot of kids that we work with, they find that think channel really challenging because they just haven't had a lot of practice at that. So, like, if you ask them to read, say, all the ways you can greet somebody, that would be very easy. But then if you say, tell me all of the different ways you can greet someone, right, that would be a much harder skill, something they have not practiced previously. And yet you need That's that right. channel a lot, right, in a lot of different contexts across the day. So, yeah, I I, I love you talking about that. Um, do you program for that free element in a lot of skills that you do? Or the think- I try to do quite a few think mark or think right, especially with associations or, you know, when they just freely associate because that's what we're doing right now. We're, we're just, to, you know, think say. Yeah. And think right. And that, you know, we use a lot of that. And so I like I use in math, I use an equal. I start with equal 10 right combinations that equal 10. And then they boy, they even go one plus one plus one plus one plus one, you know, and they they really do 100 take away 90 and they get really good at it. And then I let them pick any number they want and write combinations for a minute. They think of math differently. They don't think it's always going to give you the problem because sometimes it doesn't give you the problem. It gives you the answer and you have to come up with what the combinations are. Yeah. So I, I, I love doing think right in math. It took me a while to figure out how to do think right because I was always into hearsay, hear right. I thought I had a lot of channels. Yeah. They're the easy thing to program for, right? They're the, <laughs> the easy yeah. one. When when my students write, I write too, most of the time. When they're doing equal a number, I'm doing it. They they look at mine and find one mistake. And I look at theirs and they have to make one mistake. But when they do different things, because I want them to notice what numbers I write, what numbers they write. But just doing tallies and lilies and all the handwriting things I do, most of my time, the time when the students time, I do it too. And they look at mine and they sometimes circle my good ones and I circle their good ones. And then they're looking at a model. I want them to have a model. And I found that when I do it with them, they stay very focused and they'll go, 
oh, yours are really neat. And I go, oh, yeah, find the neatest one. And they're looking for, you know, for details instead of me saying that one's sloppy, that I don't do any of that anymore. I found that's, well, I want to say it's aversive. It's not that I care that it's aversive as much as it doesn't do any good. Redmark. Right. Yeah. Sure. You're telling them what you're thinking. What are they thinking? What do they think is good? And which one do they feel they can improve? Show me one you think you can improve after they show me three good ones. They'll pick the one that they need to improve. And they'll, then I say, well, do you want to practice that one a little bit? And most of them will say, yes, I need to practice doing my capital U. It's not a very good one. And say, okay, let's practice that one. I'm teaming with them all the time, trying to get them to use their think channel. Yeah, nice. So you're, yeah, you're right about that. So, you know, it's it's just being explored. You know, a scientist is exploring all the time. We all need to be scientists. Yeah. And explore and use our observation yeah. to see what's there and to discover beyond. I mean, we know so much. Mandy, but we don't, we so still have so much to learn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, like I said, my little guy who's, I've never had someone who's really able to do language, but both parents speak Spanish. I've never had that experience before. So I'm learning, how am I going to teach him all the language pinpoints from someone who doesn't really have a a disability or something to do with language. He just hasn't heard the words before and put together in different ways. Yeah. And and I don't speak Spanish. So here I am, you know, but it's, it's so far he's loving it that he, he wants to, of course, he goes to school with English every day. Yeah. So he wants to learn things, but there's, it, it just, when I think, okay, I'm kind of settled in what I know. Boom. Here comes along. You do something else. Yeah. And then you get to practice pinpointing again. I guess it's the same thing if we know about the happy learner. It's practice. Practice is key, you know, to to watching them and seeing what they can do and deciding, well, what would you call that? Oh, he's doing, I see, he's doing a see do. Oh, he's doing a think do. Uh, Write the letters. Uh, can he write his name? Okay, does he have to see write the name or can he think write his name? Yeah. You know, and then deciding how you're going to, you know, make a difference for that. So, but it's it's fun. I, I, what I, I love see is that after five decades, you're still sitting there getting excited and smiling and loving uh, the creativity that comes and the problem solving and bringing joy to the learner. Um, yes. So much wisdom. And that's just been so fantastic to hear your stories, the contribution that people have made to you. On that note, though, because I promise not to take more than an hour of your time, and I've already done that, I want to thank you for all of that wonderful learning. I have some resources there that you mentioned. And I'm excited to that your new website will be coming up do you know when that might be happening no but it'll happen this spring 
Wonderful. I, I, it's going to have a lot of free resources on it too. Well, maybe this you time can come back I, uh, when it happens and talk us through the website and um, what an incredible okay. thing to do for people to um, make those resources available because that can be an absolute barrier to, to teaching something, right, not having the time to actually make the materials or um, use, you know, talk to other people about how they might teach this skill. It's a fantastic. I'm excited for that. And yes. on that note, Elizabeth, I want to thank you so much for being the most joyful person on the planet. And um, just, yeah, I wish I wish my listeners could see your smile. I'm yeah. sure everybody else. Yeah. Well, I thank you too for making this available for people so they have a chance to listen and to have fun with it and to be curious. So thank you for doing this. It's really a gift to all of us. And oh, I really appreciate it because we need people to to celebrate learning and to keep data and the happy, you know, I was following the learner and following the data. Those are two things to keep balancing. Yeah. You know, the learner and the data, we need both of them and to make it enjoyable for the whole team. Yeah. For the whole so team. Thank you. I think Dr. Kim always shared with me, it's got to be fun. That's what she said. <laughs> it's got to be fun. The minute that you're straining or the learner's straining, you know, that's a, there's a big fun barrier there. So, yeah, it's got to be fun. <laughs> it needs to be fun because then we can carry on and enjoy it. So I do enjoy it. I really do. And I'm very thankful that I've had such good teachers. Yeah, well, so. Thank you for sharing all of your wisdom and for being here to talk about pinpointing. There's lots more we could say, but on that note, I just want to say bless you. I remind everybody that Elizabeth brings the heart wherever she goes and, um, yeah, we now have hearts all over our clinic as well. And um, bless you, Elizabeth. We really hope to have you back very soon. Lots of okay, love. Okay, thank you very much. I'm, I'm coming really to California as soon as I can. I want to see. Uh, I want to see the heart in action. So I can't wait to meet you in person. Oh, good. Well, come to California. <laughs> Take care. Take care, Elizabeth. Bless you. Bye bye.